Amen, amen. Hey, please be seated. And for those who don't know me, my name is Chase Potter. I'm a member here at Ridgecrest. I've been coming here since I was in high school when I first started dating my beautiful now wife, Lydia. And Lydia has been attending Ridgecrest with her family since she was three years old. And so I'm not going to tell y'all how many years that's been. I don't want anybody doing the math and getting me in trouble. I've been married far too long to disclose the age of my wife. I'm much too smart for that. So I'm not making that mistake. Um, We now have five children. Uh, Each one of them as infants were dedicated to the Lord right here in this church. Two of them have come forward in baptism. We're We're baptized in those waters right there behind me. You know, put simply, Uh, This is our church home. You are our church family, and it's a great honor and privilege to be able to bring a message this morning from the Word of God. And some of y'all may remember that this actually is my second time to preach here at Ridgecrest. I was able to do so back in November of 2019, shortly after Thanksgiving. And, you know, I was thinking about that in preparation for the sermon today, and I thought, you know, that's only a couple months before COVID hit, and that was actually probably the last time that I got to get up in person and speak in front of people uh, before COVID hit. And so for those who don't know, I'm a lawyer. And so oftentimes I have an opportunity to stand up in court in front of a judge and potentially a jury and deliver an argument or speak in front of people uh, at like a legal conference, those type of things. But man, it's been a while. It's been well over a year at this point. And so uh, if I seem a little off, a little off my game, you might be thinking, man, maybe he's just nervous. Maybe it's just, you know, he hasn't done this in a while. But no, that's not it. I mean, I'm really actually quite excited about this. I'm glad to return to a little bit of normalcy uh, to see so many of your smiling faces this morning. But no, if I seem off, I'll tell you what it is. It's having to wear these dress pants. (laughs) Now, that may seem like a weird reason to you right now, but let me explain what I mean. Over this past year, Many of you, I'm sure, have shared this experience. Everything I've done has been via Zoom, right? Every time I've had a deposition, a hearing, a trial, it's all been via Zoom. And there haven't been a lot of great things that come from COVID, but one thing that I've liked is the dress code. And if you don't know the COVID dress code, let me fill you in because I am an expert at it, okay? It is business from the waist up, right? So, man, I'm looking good. I've got my suit jacket on. I've got my tie. The new beard is popping on the Zoom call, right? But man, from the waist down, it's all about comfort, right? Whether it's shorts or sweatpants or otherwise, it's all about comfort. So if this goes poorly today, we've got a built-in excuse. We're going to blame it on the pants, okay? Um, All right, so when Jesse and Justin first approached me about this sermon series that we'd be preaching together during uh, the time that Matt and his family are out on their short sabbatical, they told me that we'd be in Luke chapter 24 and journeying through Jesus's ministry after his resurrection. I was really excited about that because I thought about over the course of my life and going to church since I was a young boy, I couldn't really remember a pastor really focusing in on this portion of Jesus's ministry. So I think it's great that we've been able to journey through this important time together as a church family. And, you know, being infinitely smarter and more clever than I am, Justin and Jesse came up together with this great slogan for our sermon series. And it's the question, now what? And I think that's great. I mean, the the question is, now what? Because, you know, we've made it to Easter. We have Jesus resurrected. And the question becomes, well, now what? 
And that's a great question because we can all relate to it. I think at some point in our lives, we've had a, a big moment, whether it be a goal that you set for yourself and then you accomplish it. And man, you have a time of celebration in doing so. But then you have this moment where somewhat of emptiness thinking, well, now what? Where do I go from here? Um, I could think of a time in my life when that was applicable. Kind of a fun example. Go back to the summer of 2011. Now, just to set the stage for you guys, in the summer of 2011, Lydia and I only had one kid. And I said before that we now have five. So this has been a lifetime ago. When I was thinking that that's only been a decade, that doesn't feel like that at all. I didn't have any gray hairs in my beard before then. Now I do. Um, and so... In the summer of 2011, with only one kid, we had a sufficient amount of sanity and car space to take a road trip. So that's what we did, right? We no longer have that. Road trips are a distant memory for us with five kids. And so we decided to go to Navarra Beach, Florida, which is on the panhandle of Florida. We used to travel there when I was a kid quite often for vacations with my family. And so it was a great time. We got this little beach a condo right on the beach that we rented. And it was especially fun because some of you may remember in June of 2011, the Dallas Mavericks were in the NBA Finals. And not only were they in the NBA Finals, they were matched up against the hated Miami Heat, the first ever of these so-called super teams in the NBA. They had LeBron James, they had Dwayne Wade, they had Chris Bosh, and our Mavericks were matched up against them. And man, I am a longtime suffering fan of our local professional sports teams. I've been a Cowboys fan my whole life. I'm really too young to remember and appreciate the glory days of the early 90s. Man, I can remember after that, and whew, it's been a, it's been a rough ride. But, you know, the Mavericks, they were horrible my whole time I was growing up, and the Rangers have never quite got there. But summer of 2011, man, it was our time. The Mavericks were there. They were led by my favorite professional sports athlete by a wide margin, Dirk Nowitzki, and it was a great time. And I can remember this so specifically. It was game six, NBA Finals. The Mavericks are playing in Miami. Man, we've got Dirk, we've got Jason Terry, Jason Kidd, Tyson Chandler, Sean Marion. I could feel my wife looking at me and thinking, how in the world does the guy who cannot remember the three items I asked him to pick up from the grocery store remember all these details about a basketball game from a decade ago? I have one response to that. Fair criticism, okay, that's a fair, that's fair. Um, but man, we were there, and so this game starts going, I'm nervous, and, and they tip it off, and it's going well for the Mavericks, and we get closer and closer, and I could feel it coming, and finally, that final buzzer goes off, and man, they've done it, they've won, they're the world champions, and I am so excited. I'm up, jumping, screaming. I hear the people in the condo next to us start banging on the wall. I just assume, hey, Mavericks fans. I start banging back, let's go Mavs. And Lydia's like, no, I don't think that they are celebrating like you are. And based on what they yelled back at me, they weren't. So she was, she was right. Um, but man, that was a great night. We had a lot of fun. We really celebrated that. But then I remember waking up in the morning and thinking, now what? You know, they finally did this thing that I was looking forward to, but now where do I go from here? And man, when we get back in Luke chapter 24, the disciples found themselves in an all-time, now what situation? You know, in our sermon series over the last two weeks, we have seen how the disciples first doubted Jesus and his promised resurrection, even after Jesus had initially appeared before them following his crucifixion, death, and burial. On the road to Emmaus, 
the two men didn't recognize Jesus. And the disciples were terrified when Jesus suddenly appeared in this private room behind a locked door where the disciples were hiding, which led the disciples to believe that Jesus was a ghost. They thought he was a ghost with some gnarly-looking wounds on his side and hands and feet, right? That's what Jesse was talking about last week. But then Scripture tells us that Jesus opened their eyes, uh, and the disciples began to realize that they were in the presence of the risen Lord. Um, as Jesse preached last week, Jesus testified to and produced overwhelming and undeniable evidence of his resurrection. Jesus showed the disciples his wounds, and Jesus ate and conversed with them. The disciples were realizing that Jesus, who was standing before them, both fully God and fully man, had in fact risen from the dead in accordance with the scriptures and Jesus' own teachings about himself. This had to be an unbelievably joyous time of celebration for the disciples. On the road to Emmaus, we see that the men had said when Jesus appeared and they didn't recognize him, that they had hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. The disciples are now realizing that Jesus is the redeemer for whom they have longed. He is their savior. Jesus is who he said he was. He is the fulfillment of all prophecies through his resurrection to which they are now firsthand witnesses. Jesus has conquered sin and death. Jesus was victorious, and the disciples are in the presence of their risen king. Amen. Hallelujah. What a time of celebration. But we are uniquely qualified to know the exact question the disciples will have as soon as this high of the celebration in Jesus' victory subsides. It's human nature. And that question is this. Well, now what? Where do we go from here? Unsurprisingly, it appears that Jesus knew that question was coming uh, before it was even asked. Because in Luke 24, 44 through 49, which is where we'll be this morning, Jesus answers that question. And in doing so, Jesus provides us as Christian our mission, our mandate, and our purpose. So let's read that text together. And as you turn, tap, or scroll your way to Luke 24, 44 through 49... Please know that there are Bibles in the pew back in front of you in case you didn't bring a copy of God's Word this morning. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that with you today. We'd love for that to be our gift to you. So let's read Luke 24, 44 through 49 together, which begins like this. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, before we unpack this set of, these set of verses together, I want to kind of set the stage for us with respect to where we are in time, proximity of time. Where we see this in the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 24, is, is nearing the very end. In fact, it's the uh, last account in Luke of teachings or instruction, instructions from Jesus before his ascension into heaven. And so... If you think of it, it's kind of like Jesus' departing words, departing teachings, departing instructions to his disciples, these 11 who have walked with him during his ministry on earth. 
And you may have had a similar situation in your life where you were giving someone departing words or departing instructions. It may have been a child going off to college. It may be a loved one who you knew was either moving away or nearing death. I can think of, in my own life, one of my grandfathers, my, my, my mom's father, uh, was put on hospice care shortly before he passed. And, you know, we had a unique opportunity of he was being cared for by some wonderful nurses in his own home, and we got to go visit him one last time. And I knew on the way, this is the last time I'm ever going to get to speak to him. And, you know, I thought long and hard, what do I want to say? I want this to be impactful. I want this to be meaningful. And I was able to pray with him. I was able to talk to him about his faith and re receive a great assurance about his salvation. And that was just a sweet time for me and my family. And so this is similar to what we see here with Jesus. We really need to lean in. These are his departing words to his disciples. So let's kind of unpack this together. You know, we have to remember where we find the disciples. They're just now getting over the shock of Jesus's gruesome death, mourning his burial, and his unprecedented resurrection. Jesus begins this final teaching by directly addressing the disciples' state of mind with a reminder that they shouldn't be surprised by his suffering and resurrection. He says at the beginning of verse 44 that these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. There should be no surprise because scripture and Jesus himself made it abundantly clear that suffering and death were always fundamental to the work of the Messiah. That was always God's plan for salvation. God wasn't surprised by his son's death. God didn't have to call a last-minute audible and resurrect Jesus. No, suffering, death, and resurrection was always the plan, and the plan was always about Jesus. In fact, in the second half of verse 44, Jesus makes clear that all of Scripture supports this conclusion that the plan of salvation always was and remains about Jesus and his fulfillment of God's promises. Jesus says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus here is speaking about the three divisions of the Old Testament. One, the law, two, the prophets, and three, the writings, of which Psalms is a very large portion. Nothing in the Old Testament is being omitted because all of Scripture spoke of and pointed toward Jesus. But this concept of a suffering Savior was still very difficult for the disciples to comprehend because hardly anybody in Israel actually believed it. You know, a suffering savior, savior was counter to everything their society told them to expect in a redeemer and a king. In 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul describes the message of a crucified Messiah as a stumbling block to the Jews. And we're not immune. Uh, Paul goes on to describe this message as folly to the Gentiles. For the disciples, their society wanted and expected a warrior king who would vanquish and conquer their enemies. Certainly not one who would allow himself to be beaten and mocked and hung on a tree. And you know, we're no different. Uh, nothing has changed. Our society still does the same thing. The world continues to put its hope in political, business, and social leaders who appear to wield the most power and influence. Uh, how well do we think a politician would do by running a campaign on a platform of humility and his or her willingness to suffer for the sake of others. I don't think they'd do too well. 
myself. Um, society's perception of the crucified Messiah as a stumbling block or folly is why verse 45 is necessary. And verse 45 tells us that Jesus opened their mind to understand the scriptures. And so even these 11 disciples who were in the presence of the risen Jesus, these 11 who had walked with Jesus throughout his ministry on earth and witnessed his many miracles and heard his teachings, still needed Jesus to open their minds and to understand the truth of the gospel. The necessity for and willingness of Jesus to open the disciples' minds to understand should be a great comfort and encouragement to us in the evangelical mission to which Jesus calls us. Opening a non-believer's mind and heart to understanding the gospel message has been and, and remains a gift from God through the moving of the Holy Spirit. It's not our job to convince someone to believe or force someone to understand. We are simply called to glorify God through our obedience in proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus, effectuating a heart change, effectuating understanding. Those aren't our roles. That can only be accomplished through the power of Jesus Christ and the moving of the Holy Spirit. We have to set the proper mindset of what we're called to do through evangelism. Otherwise, we will be discouraged and we won't do it. The key truth that Jesus wanted the disciples to grasp in this final teaching recorded in Luke prior to Jesus' ascension is set forth in verse 46, which says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Jesus is again hammering down on the importance of his suffering, death, and resurrection. That truth that Jesus suffered, died, and rose is the bedrock of our faith. That's the summation of it in one sentence, right? I mean, if Christ didn't suffer, die, and rise, he would not have fulfilled all the prophecies written about him in Scripture. If Christ did not suffer, die, and rise, there would be no victory over sin and death. If Christ didn't suffer, die, and rise, there would be no Savior in whom we could place our hope. Put simply, church family, if Christ didn't suffer, die, and rise, there would be no gospel message of salvation for us to proclaim. After Jesus emphasizes this key truth that represents the crux of our faith, he answers the question we've been asking now for the past three weeks. Now what? Now that Jesus has done this, now he has defeated sin and death on our behalf, something we could never accomplish, now what? What are we to do? In verse 47, Jesus says as follows, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. This is the same directive from Jesus that is recorded in chapter 29 of the Gospel of Matthew, which we refer to as the Great Commission, right? Where Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. This call to evangelism by Jesus, which is the final instruction from Jesus to his disciples, both in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew, constitutes our mandate, our mission, and our purpose that we talked about before. This answers that question. It's the answer to our question of now what? Christians, if we ask ourselves, now that Jesus has taken on our sins, 
hung them on the cross, defeated death, and sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf, what shall we do? The answer is abundantly clear. It's that we glorify Jesus by faithfully proclaiming the good news of his gospel here in Greenville and Hunt County and throughout all nations. Christian brothers and sisters, it is literally what we were created to do. We are designed to glorify him by telling others about him. That's it. That's the answer. That's what we are called to do. In verse 48, Jesus says, you are witnesses of these things. Now, with respect to the disciples, they are the type of witnesses we think of who are qualified to testify in a lawsuit, right? They had firsthand knowledge and experience of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. They literally walked with Jesus. They heard his teachings. They witnessed his death and were conversing with him after his resurrection. But by no means is Jesus limiting the call to evangelism to the first generation Christians. Absolutely not. If you are a professing believer in Jesus Christ, then you too are a witness through general revelation, personal revelation, and your reading of God's word, and you too are included in this call to evangelism. Jesus didn't provide for any exceptions. There are none to be found. All Christians are included in this mandate. It is all of our calling. It is all of our collective purpose. Now, I get it. That might be scary to some because evangelism may not come easy to you. Join the club, right? Um, You may not see it as your natural gifting. You may think that in your own power, in your own strength, through your own merit and talents, you could never effectively share the gospel and proclaim the name of Jesus. If that's the way you feel, let it be heard that that is a good thing. Because it reflects a rightful understanding of our deficiencies and need for God to equip us for the mission to which we have been called. Verse 49 should provide a great comfort to us because Jesus confirms that God does just that. He equips us to proclaim the gospel through the gifting of the Holy Spirit, which indwells in all Christians. In verse 49, Jesus says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Now, the promise that Jesus is referencing here in verse 49 is that of the Holy Spirit. And Luke tells us in Acts 2 that this promise was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus goes on in verse 49 and instructs the disciples as follows. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus doesn't expect us to proclaim the good news of the gospel and our own power. In fact, he tells us right here in verse 49 that we shouldn't do so. We are only prepared to carry out our mission when we are clothed with the power of the Holy Spirit, which is a gift that is bestowed upon all Christians. So if we as Christians understand that one... We are witnesses and therefore have been directly and unequivocally called to evangelism by Jesus himself. And two, we are equipped through the gift of the Holy Spirit for evangelism. Then we have to ask ourselves, why do we so often struggle to share the good news of the gospel with the lost? Why is that so hard for us? There are countless reasons we give for excusing ourselves from evangelism and let me tell you I'm as guilty as anyone 
Sometimes we fear that we won't know what to say from a theological perspective, but we don't need to be a human glossary of theological terms or know the intricacies of Christian apologetics to be able to tell people about Jesus. You simply need to tell your story. If you know enough about Jesus to surrender your life to him, then you know enough to share the gospel. If you know enough about Jesus to profess that he is your Lord and Savior, then you know enough to share the gospel. If you know that Jesus suffered and willingly gave his life as a sacrifice for your sins, that he laid sin and death to rest when he rose and left that tomb empty, and you know that he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding on behalf, then brother, you know enough to share the gospel. If we're being honest with ourselves, church family, oftentimes we don't share the gospel simply because we don't prioritize it. We lead busy lives and we become easily distracted by the temporal things of this world and either put off or outright ignore our calling from Jesus to evangelism, which is a calling to the only activity in which we can engage here on earth that can have eternal impact. Now, if I was blind and the edge of this stage is a cliff and I'm walking straight toward it, not knowing that I'm about to fall to my demise and my death, I am 100% confident that each one of you would run forward with a great sense of urgency and say, stop. You are headed towards your demise. You are headed toward death. But we see people every single day who we know are lost, who we know do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And man, we do nothing. We just let them walk straight forward towards that cliff that we know leads to an eternal death apart from God. Man, we have to believe what we say, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message worth proclaiming. We have to have urgency in our grieving for the lost. We have to love people enough to get outside of our comfort zone and say, stop. You have to hear this message, this great gift of Jesus Christ that I so undeservingly received. Jesus doesn't need us to make his name known and to advance his gospel. But we should be honored that Jesus has called us to be his hands and feet in this world and that he gave us a purpose that will further his kingdom and have an eternal impact. It's my hope and prayer for this church that we will be known as a body of believers who are on fire for sharing the gospel let us be intentional about making that our identity from this point forward. The question we've been asking for the last three weeks is now what? Well, the answer is obvious. Now we live our lives to tell people about the amazing gift of salvation we have received from Jesus and that the same gift is available to them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the suffering Savior, that the Son of Man came, that he lived a perfect life, that he took on the sins of the world and he hung them there on that tree 
and he resurrected to defeat sin and death, a mission that we could never accomplish. And God, we are so thankful that you have called us to proclaim that message to the world, to meet the lost with a sense of urgency. And God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would move through this room, that it would move through our midst, that it would convict us, convict our hearts in a call to evangelism and make us grieve for the lost when we reach them with a sense of great urgency, knowing that there is no more important message we can deliver. God, let that be our identity. Let us be known for our love for others by the way that we share Jesus. God, we're thankful for the Holy Spirit, and we pray that it would move us into action. Amen.